begin in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 8. When he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. And they were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine. The whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw Him, they implored Him to leave their region. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Cast not your pearls before swine. Apparently casting swine into the Sea of Galilee was another thing. With a single command, Jesus caused the original Bay of Pigs. You know, when the demons entered the swine, what they became, don't you? Deviled ham. That's what happened. And the Sea of Galilee could be called, for the moment, Swine Lake. I think all of these encapsulate this story. (laughs) It's one of the more famous incidents in the Gospel. It's covered by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three. But if you read this account and compare it with Mark's account and Luke's account in their Gospels, they only mention one demon-possessed man. Matthew tells us there are two. It's one of those places in Scripture where someone could jump up and say, Contradiction! You see, the Bible's not as accurate as you think it is. Actually, I would say the Bible is more accurate than you thought it was. The question here, were there two incidents, two separate demon account incidents, one with two men and a bunch of pigs, and one with one man and a bunch of pigs, or, or is it possibly two men, or maybe did Matthew get it wrong, or maybe Mark and Luke, did they get it wrong? Well, because of the similarities of the stories, we know that the stories in all three are the same incident. Which brings us back to the question, two men demon-possessed, or one man demon-possessed? I think, gang, that Mark and Luke only mention one demoniac because his story is the one that mattered. Because his is the most significant. Now Matthew mentions two because there were two. Mark and Luke mention one because only one really became the focus, the significant centerpiece of that story. And I'll speak more about that in a few minutes. Besides, the story before us isn't about a number of demoniacs. It truly is about Jesus. And if we get so focused on the miraculous and the things He did and the people that He healed, we can sometimes be swayed by that to miss the person of Jesus Christ. And He is the one we're looking to. He is the one that we want to know. It's not what does this story tell me about the number of demoniacs, it's what does this story tell me about Jesus, my Lord and Savior. How can I understand and know Him better by the reading? Now granted, this opens up a whole new realm for us. For we have seen hints of demonic confrontation in Jesus' ministry before in Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verse 24. Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. He's he's dealt with demons at least to the point that we know He cast them out. This is the first time in any of the Gospels where suddenly we see the situation. We see Jesus face to face with demons. And we see how Jesus handles them. And it gives us some fascinating insight into demonology in the spiritual realm. We're going to talk about that a little bit. 
But even more so, this story gives insight into the priorities of people versus the priorities of Jesus. You might ask, what do you mean by that? Well, to to understand or to explain, we have to draw back and do a little historical research. So I'd like you to keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 8 and flip all the way back to the book of Numbers, chapter 32. Numbers chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. Numbers 32, verse 1. While you're turning there, a little background to Numbers chapter 32. The children of Israel have been wandering 40 years in the wilderness. You know, because of their sin at Kadesh Barnea, they were not willing to go into the promised land. Even though God said, go in and take the land, when the spies came back, ten of the twelve said, we can't go in there, we're like grasshoppers compared to these giants. Two of the twelve, you remember their names, Joshua and Caleb, were firm and said, no, we've got to go in. And so because the people's heart failed... And they believed the ten spies instead of the two. They wandered throughout that wilderness for 40 years. Well, we're at the the end of that 40 years by the time we get to Numbers 32. We're at a conquering stage where Moses is still with the people of Israel, the children of Israel. And they are conquering. They are moving up and around and coming now close to the Jordan, ready to cross over. Now, Moses won't cross over because of his sin, and that's all part of this history. But they're about ready to go across and fight. Watch what happens. Numbers 32, verse 1, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Hatzer and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Azeroth and Devon and Hatzer and Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliala, Saban, Nebo and Beon. The land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock. And your servants have livestock. They said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. The Reubenites and the Gadites wanted to settle. Before crossing into the land of promise, they said, this land looks good to us. Let, let us just stay here. You, you guys go on. That's fine. We're, we're okay not going into the promised land, not crossing the Jordan. We want to stay right here. Because this land is perfect for all our flocks and our herds. It reminds me of Lot. Back in Genesis chapter 13, long about verse 10, Abraham and Lot had, had set out together. And as they came into the land, they were looking out over it. And they had some fights going on between their herdsmen because they both had a lot of livestock, lots of flocks. And so Abraham said to Lot, pick the land. You pick where you want to go, and I'll go in the opposite direction. You choose. And Lot looks out over the land, and he sees a green, lush valley. A place called Sodom. And Lot says, this looks good. This looks great for raising livestock. And so Lot goes to settle there in the region of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, a great place to raise livestock. Lousy place to raise kids. And you remember the story of of Lot and what happens and how he barely got out. And how his wife was turned into a pillar of salt because she was drawn to that region to be a part of all that. Well, in the same way now, Reuben and Gad, they stand up east of the Jordan River and they say, hey, this land is all we need. We can feed our livestock. Our families, after all this travel, can finally get some rest. We don't want to cross the Jordan. Now, to me, it's one of the most stunning moments in the history of Israel. Because these two tribes 
are on the verge of promise. All they have to do is cross that river and they are there. But instead, they choose to settle. It's good enough. The land here suits us. It's good enough. And good enough is a settler's phrase. Brothers and sisters, you might want to ask yourself, what do I want? Do I just want good enough? Paul wrote in Ephesians 3.20, He is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. More than we ask or think. The word think there in the Greek is noieo. It literally means more than we can comprehend. We can, if we sat down and put our heads together and thought, let's imagine big. Let's dream beyond the stars. Let's think about something God can do. Here at the bridge, because of, as Paul said, His power at work within us, let's think big. What can He accomplish here? We still couldn't comprehend the goal. We couldn't comprehend what God could do, wants to do, is willing to do among us. We can't even think that far ahead. And Paul's encouraging us, don't settle. Don't settle. Don't be willing to to sit down with good enough. The tribes of Reuben and Gad did, and it would cost them dearly. Aside from right at this moment upsetting Moses and the fathers, you're saying, what, you're just going to pull out on us and leave us on our own to fight against the enemies on the other side? There was, a, there was a stirring. There was dissension in the ranks. That would happen again. By Joshua chapter 22, they built an altar there on the east side of the Jordan. The tribes of Reuben and Gad would. And when they built the altar, their brothers on the other side of the river almost ignited into civil war against them. Because they were supposed to be worshipping at Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle were. And so what was happening, the reason they set that altar up is they were feeling isolated. They told their brothers, look, we put this up here as a witness between us that we're still part of you. Interesting. Because they didn't choose to go in, now they start to feel isolated and alone. And that happens in the church. I see people who will not engage in fellowship, who hold back, and then they start to feel isolated, and then they start to question what other people around them are doing, and how they're thought of in the church. And gang, it's decisions we make. It's because we settle. It's because we say, no, I'm good enough. I have enough friends. i got enough relationships. I'm okay there. Don't settle for good enough. Reuben and Gad, they have to set this thing up. There's almost civil war. And because of that isolation from the rest of Israel, ultimately the tribe of Gad would be the first tribe picked off by the Assyrians. Because they chose to settle. Because they would not cross into the promised land. Why are you telling us all this? Because this is the very reason, the very region Jesus and his disciples landed in. A region that was eventually called Gad Arenos, Gadera, because that was the place of the tribe of Gad. So when you read about some of your versions say the Gerasene demoniac, it should be the Gadarenes, because that region on that side of the Sea of Galilee is Gadara the country of the Gadarenes. So one time Jewish community was living there, the tribe of Gad, and by now, as Jesus lands there with the apostles, they're completely overrun by paganism. There are still many Jews living there, some possibly from the tribe of Gad who came back after Assyrian captivity, but gang, as they lived there, paganism is the standard rule. The people living in Gadara had a prime occupation of raising pork 
Now, if you know anything about Judaism and the law, that's inconsistent at best. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 7 says, The pig, for though it divides the hoof, thus making a split hoof, it does not chew cud, it is unclean for you. You shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their carcasses, they are unclean for you. But as Jesus lands there at Gadara, bacon has long been on the menu. The people are into port. The Lord had even given a serious warning to Israel's rebelliousness through the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier. Listen to what he says, Isaiah 65, verse 2. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. A people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh, and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots. And it all began with the people of Gad settling instead of surging. Dealing or or accepting or choosing good enough instead of what God had in mind, His best for them. Well, with that background in mind, I want you to notice three things in the story before us here where Jesus cast out these demons. And the first is simply this. The people of Gadara had developed a preference for pigs. A preference for pigs. Down in verse 33, it tells us the herdsmen ran away. They went into the city, reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. They don't say, hey Jesus, can you stay for lunch? Cold pork barbecue sandwiches is on the menu. We're going to eat that. The problem is holiness, Jesus' holiness, was bad for business. He drove out the demons into the pigs. The pigs go into the sea and the people are like, wait a minute. We find out later from Mark that was 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of money. You need to get out of here. If this is the kind of thing that's going to happen, we're going to lose our shirts over this. The same thing is true today when we choose the world's bacon over the Lord's blessing. When we choose the fat of the world, a passion for the fat of the world that literally does us no good. A hunger to be fed by things that only clog our hearts spiritually. Let me be more clear. Things like money, or sex, or power, or pride, self-interest, selfish gain. Placing yourself in numero uno, position number one. Psalm 106.14, a verse we've heard before, Tells us the Israelites lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert, and He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. And that's the only thing the fat of the world will ever bring us. Leanness of soul. No matter how much we eat and feed, we still end up empty. And the Lord knows this. And gang, isn't, just, isn't this the root of the financial crisis that's hitting America today? And it's not just the greed of Wall Street. It is the greed of Main Street. I'm sorry, it is all of our responsibility that our country is where it is. Everybody wants and wants more and wants the best in terms of gain and greed. Turn from there over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I ran across this verse this week and it's another one of those that really should shake us in our mentality, especially as American consumers. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. John says the following, We know love by this, 
that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The brethren can sound a little distant. We ought to lay down our lives for each other. If we were truly followers of Jesus Christ, it means that looking out among you, there's not a single person here who I shouldn't be willing, if I truly love like He loved, to lay down my life for. Even someone I don't like. Even someone I have an issue with. And there's no one here like that. They're all in second service. Um, (laughs) Even someone you might have a problem with in this church fellowship, you have to say, if I'm going to live with the mentality of Jesus Christ, I am willing to lay down my life for them. That, That may not necessarily mean die. But it may mean putting their interests ahead of yours. Even if it makes you look bad. It may mean saying, I'm going to do my best for them, even though they're doing their worst to me. That's the kind of love we're talking about. That is, That unconditional agape love is intense. It's far more than showing up for a church fellowship. It's about putting everybody else ahead of our own desires, our own needs. But read on. He says in verse 17, 1 John 3, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth. We will assure our heart before Him and whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and He knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. In other words, what John's saying is, you know. You know where you stand. You know where you are before the Father. And he says, whatever we ask, verse 22, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. In other words, if I'm asking for worldly goods of any kind, when he blesses me with that, it's because he knows and I know that that blessing is going to be used for someone else. It's really not for me. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9. You're going to be blessed with all liberality so that you can be more liberal in your giving, in your care for other people around you. And he goes on and says, this is the commandment, verse 23, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. You want a clean heart? Believe and receive the love of Jesus Christ. You want a heart that stays clean before Him? Love people the way He did. The way He does. Now go back to our story there in Matthew chapter 8. We mentioned that the people of Gadara had a preference for pigs. And what this really means is, and it's amazing to me, in this story nobody gives a rip about the two-heeled men standing there among them. They're more concerned about the pigs. These two guys who have been running in the graveyards, whose lives were an absolute mess, are suddenly saved. And the town doesn't care. They're more worried about sunk pigs than saved persons. We do the same thing when we elevate personal desire over brotherly concern. My preferences become piggish. When protecting my income is more important than meeting a brother in his need. When clinging to my worldly goods, when my sister's life is going bad, my preferences are piggish. I am preferring pigs over people. And that's Satan's great desire to make pigs out of us. That's what he wants to do. Each and every one of us to be selfish and self-obsessed and self-centered pigs. That makes the enemy very happy. Now Luke adds something here in the description of these pig people of Gadara. (laughs) 
as they begged Jesus to leave, it tells us in Luke chapter 8, verse 37, that they were gripped with fear. Because not only was their business in jeopardy, but the power of Jesus scared them. It frightened them. They knew what was going on with these two demon-possessed men. And to see them in their right mind, again, they didn't care about them, but to see them sitting there healed and changed and transformed in such an amazing and immediate way, made the people look at Jesus and go, I don't think we want this around here. This frightens us. What's interesting is another party was present that day that was gripped with fear when they saw Jesus. And we need to see this. The second thing to note, it's not just a preference for pigs in Gadara, but the perception of the demons. The perception of the demons. Chapter 8, verse 29. They cried out when they saw Jesus. They cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? I want to give you quickly here three things to recognize about demons. As we look a little, consider demonology just for a moment, the study of demons, thinking about this. Some things to recognize about their perception, about what they know, what they understand. Because in what they say in this one verse, they reveal quite a bit about themselves. First off, demons recognize Jesus. They recognized Jesus. When no one else knew who this man getting out of the boat was, those demons knew. They even called him out. What do you have to do with us? What do we have to do with each other, Son of God? They knew who he was. James tells us in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. And this is not the only time that demons recognize Jesus or his followers. There are many examples of this. I'll, I'll give you a couple. Just prior to this event, when Jesus was over in Capernaum, it tells us when he was in the synagogue there in Capernaum, that a man, a demon-possessed man, began to shout at him. Now if you stand in the synagogue in Capernaum, it's not a huge place. It's actually smaller, well, maybe about the size of the barn. And in that synagogue, there's a man who began shouting at him, demon-possessed, and he said in Luke chapter 4, verse 34, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You think, why would a demon do that? He's trying to spoil Jesus' timing. Jesus knew the perfect time to begin to reveal His Messiahship to His followers and to the people. If he did it too soon, the people would want to. As we see happen, the people would try to make him king early. And it was not time for that. And so the demon's trying to mess things up. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, come out of him. And the demon comes out. It's incredible power, gang. As this demon tries to spill the beans about Jesus' true identity before the time is right, it fails. Jesus casts that demon out. In another instance, further on in the Bible, in the book of Acts chapter 19... It's one of the funnier stories related to demons. We're told that a demon recognized Paul as a follower of Jesus. You see, at that time, Acts 19 tells us there were a bunch of of, of Jewish guys going around using the name of Jesus to cast out demons. I don't know if they were doing it for a buck or if they were doing it for notoriety, but Acts chapter 19, it tells us about seven Jewish sons of a priest named Sceva. The sons of Sceva... And what we're told is they're going around trying to exercise demons, saying, I adjure you, by Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out. And we're told in verse 15 of Acts 19, an evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now that tells us something about demons as well. They recognize Jesus. 
They may not recognize you. They acknowledge His power, His authority. They may not really care a whole lot about yours. So in approaching this this realm, you know what my, my standard is? I don't talk to demons. I don't talk to Satan. I talk about Jesus. Lift up the name of Jesus. Speak Jesus. If I'm worried, if I'm afraid, I don't go, oh, demons flee from me. I say, Jesus, I need you here. Jesus, you are Lord of my life. Jesus, be here now. Be with me. Protect me. Watch over me. I proclaim, I declare Jesus Christ as Lord. They hate that. That's enough to cause a demon to flee. Demons aren't stupid, gang. They may be depraved, dangerous, hell-bent on your destruction and mine, but they know who has the real power. They recognize Jesus as the Son of God, and they know He has the power. Now, sidetrack here with me for a moment. Do you realize that if you bear the name and the Spirit of Jesus Christ in your life, that the unimaginable power that Paul talked about before, the one that we can't even conceive of, that power is at work in you. That power is yours. That power is present when the Spirit of Jesus is present with us. That same power, Paul said, is at work in us. Let me give you a description of that power. Flip over to Mark chapter 16 at the very end of Mark's Gospel. It's a disputed passage. But I want you to hear what is said here. I'm going to explain something about this. So this, this one, by the way, you don't have to pay for this this morning. This is free, kind of a bonus teaching, right? I know you like those. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Before Jesus ascended, ascended up to the heavens, he, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs, he says, will accompany those who have believed. In my name, watch this, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They'll pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Please don't go home and drink deadly poison. That's just called stupid. Okay? That's the kind of thing where I can see someone doing that. And the next moment, they're standing before Jesus in heaven going, Well, you said if I drink deadly poison, I recover. And Jesus is saying, Well, yeah, you recovered. You're here now. <laughs> What were you thinking? What he's talking about here with the apostles and with the people is you're going to have a divine protection. You don't need to fear things like martyrdom. At worst, you'll be with well, at best, you'll be with me, and at worst, I'm going to make sure that you're protected. We know in the book of Acts, several of these things are are shown to us. Paul is bitten by a deadly viper. He shakes it off into the fire. You know, moves on. It doesn't hurt him. Now, if you, if you read Mark 16, 15 through 18, and you Bible students, I, I think you'll appreciate this. Some of your Bibles put this whole section from verse 8 through verse 20 into doubt. You can look at your Bibles right now. Some will have a line after verse 8. A real stark line there that obviously sets apart this last section. And a little footnote that says something to the effect of this is no longer this is not a valid section or the most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. Some of your Bibles will just have a parenthesis. The NASB has a parenthesis beginning at verse 9 and ending at verse 20. Setting this off as separate. 
This is because some believe that this was never there. That Mark actually ended his Gospel at the end of verse 8 that they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. End of Gospel. I don't think so. And I want to give you some valid argument for why I think this should be accepted as legitimate in our Bibles. Partially because it's such a powerful thing that Jesus tells us. That He expresses. That we have this this unimaginable power in us. Listen to this. There are several ancient witnesses who quoted from this section in Mark. Justin Martyr in A.D. 148. Irenaeus in A.D. 150. Hippolytus also in the 2nd century. These were major church leaders. And in commentaries that they wrote that we have sections of, we know that they quoted from this section. So at least around 100 years within when this was all written down, we know that they believed it was part of the early manuscripts. What's interesting is a large part for, of the reason for excluding these verses comes from their absence in manuscripts found in the 4th century. See, and this doesn't make sense to me because I would go back to the earliest thing that we have, the earliest proof. And the earliest proof indicates this was here at the beginning. The later proof, we see this missing. Whether it got taken out or got torn off as the scribes were passing this stuff around, I don't know. But if that doesn't convince you, there's something else that's fascinating here. I've mentioned before a doctor, Dr. Ivan Panin, who, who lived from 1850 to 1942. He spent 50 years of his life studying numbers in the Bible. Not the book of numbers, but biblical numerics. And looking at things like we, we talked about when we started off the book of Matthew, the, the number of sevens that are in Jesus' genealogy there. And how those sevens are worked into and the number of consonants are divisible by seven and the number of of vowels are divisible by seven and all that. Well, check this out. In the last 12 verses of the book of Mark, in those last 12 verses, Dr. Panin identified 75 heptatic structures. Heptat is just a big word for sevens. 75 of these sevens, of these connections of seven, he found these combinations of seven. That would be statistically 75, or, or yeah, 75 sevens. To the seven to the 75th power is what we're talking about here. Missler, in his book Hidden Treasures, says one million supercomputers composing 400 million drafts per second would require four million years just to map out 34 of these sevens. And the last 12 verses of Mark contain 75. This is not something that could be done by human hands. It's not something that could be figured out by by a scribe, someone who was just trying to work some kind of cool little thing into the background. It's something that because of this man's research, we can look and say, wow, there are 75 connections of the number 7 in the last 12 verses of the book of Mark. That, to me, at least rings of the divine. And so I think we've got something here. And by the way, if it's a little mind-boggling or confusing, just be aware that these verses, which proclaim the power of the people of Jesus against the demonic realm, are pretty inspired. Which is why Jesus said in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. What did Jesus do? He cast out demons. What else did Jesus do? He healed people. He raised the dead. Greater than all that, He loved. He loved with an unstoppable, unquenchable, unimaginable, amazing love. And Jesus says all these things, the works that I do, 
If you believe in Me, you'll do them. He says, greater works than these also He will do because I go to the Father. Indicating that the Spirit in Jesus, His power would be available to His family. Once He left, it would be even greater because now it's not just one man walking around able to do this, but it was an entire body of people. Fellowships of churches. I'm not going to get into why we don't see more of the miraculous in the American church today. I think you probably can figure that one out. All I want you to know is that this power is here. And this power of Jesus is not to glorify the self. That would be a piggish reason. The power is here. So that we would know we are called to faith and not fear in the name of Jesus Christ. As I said before, to speak the name of Jesus, we can assume and we should know that demons will shudder and flee. Even the devil himself flees from the faith of the people of Jesus. Listen to this verse. James 4, 7, James says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It doesn't say, resist the devil, and and he'll be a little disgruntled and walk off. It says he'll flee, he'll run away scared, if you are resisting him by submitting to the Lord. And I, I get excited about this because there are far too many of us in the church today who are running scared. Who are frightened by things like the demonic world. Gang, if you have the Spirit of Christ in you, what are you afraid of? Why would we worry? Why would I fret? Why would I spend one minute concerned about the presidency of the United States other than my responsibility as a citizen to vote, which you need to do? You know whoever's elected that the Bible tells us that the Lord sets up and deposes kings and rulers? may not be the man that I would want in there, but for whatever God's purposes are, whoever's elected is going to be the man that needs to be there at that point in history. And so I, I have a piece about that. Now, I already filled out my little voter form, you know, my mail-in ballot. And, and the man that I decided to vote for, who I will leave, leave, I'll leave nameless here, <clears throat> I really, really marked in thick... <laughs> His name. Okay. (laughs) But it wasn't out of fear. It wasn't out of fear. I trust that the Lord is going to do what is best, not for this country necessarily. He's going to do what is best for His plan and for His kingdom. Okay. Just remember this, 1 John 4, 4. Greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. A verse that we can run to and, and need to have just on the forefront of our mind. Anytime we're doubting, anytime we're afraid, anytime we're worried, greater is He who is in me than He who is in the world. That same power is at work within you. Now, in the words of the great theologian Han Solo, don't get cocky. This whole concept of the power of Jesus in me, again, the point is not self-glorification and it's not spiritual thrill-seeking. There's far too much of that that goes on in the church as well. The point, gang, is the valid use of spiritual power is to love and to show the love of Christ, to glorify Him. And if I am using any kind of giftedness or power to His glory, then it is a right use. We talked about this Wednesday night. The miracles of Jesus authenticated His authority and conveyed His compassion. Those are the two primary reasons we see those miracles happening. It authenticated His authority as the King of the Kingdom and it conveyed His compassion as a God of grace and love and mercy. 
Any other use of spiritual power aside from His glory or His compassion is on my part an invalid use of that spiritual power. So the perception of demons is such that they recognize the authority of the Son of God. I said quickly, didn't I? Let's let's move to the second one. Something else to understand about this realm. Demons realize their future. They know what's coming for them. Look again at verse verse 29 in Matthew chapter 8. They said, what business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know something's coming. They know that there is a judgment. That phrase, the time, in the Greek is kahiros. Kahiros, which means literally the crucial or decisive moment. They see Jesus disembark from the boat and they say, wait a minute. Now's not the time. I'm just sure it's not the time. We're supposed to have more time to do our damage and our destruction. What are you doing here? This is not the crucial moment. Demons are aware of their coming inevitable final judgment. They know it's coming. And that's good to know. Jude chapter 1 verse 6 says, Angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 describes that time the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night there forever and ever. And these demons knew a judgment was coming at the crucial and decisive moment. And when they saw Jesus, it freaked them out. Let me tell you something. What they didn't know was that that crucial and decisive moment was less than three years away. When Jesus was lifted up on Calvary, that was the deciding moment. That was the time that sealed their fate for all eternity. Gang, even now, Satan and his minions know time is wearing out. They know time is short. And as the days quicken toward the goal, we should and can expect Satan to ramp up his activity. To go after people more viciously. To be more heinous in his action. By the way, these these demons wanted or needed embodiment to do their work. You notice that? That Jesus was going to cast them out and they were afraid of that. And so they began to entreat Him, verse 31, and beg Him, saying, if you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. At least put us in some kind of a a physical body that that we can do something. I don't know what they thought they were going to do with the pigs. (laughs) Go raging across the countryside, killing people, I don't know. But they wanted some kind of embodiment to do their work but recognize there was a massive number of demons packed into these two men. Again, Mark chapter 5, verse 9 said Jesus was asking what their name was or what is your name. And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. If you study this before, you know a legion, a Roman legion, with 12,000 men. Were there that many demons in these guys? We also know in Mark 5.13 that coming out, of the in, the, coming out the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. And I want you to realize this. 2,000 pigs went completely berserk and killed themselves. Two men had the same number of demons in them for quite a while and somehow survived. Ironside says this emphasizes the enormous capacity of mankind for evil. 2,000 swine could not contain the demons who found domiciles in two degraded men. We are lost without Him. We have a sin nature that is so bleak. Without Jesus, there truly would be no hope. Praise God for His grace.
This load of evil is extremely violent and dangerous as it was. They not only recognize the Son of God and realize their future, but they also require Jesus' permission. Verse 31, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd. And he said to them, Go. And at the word of Jesus, boom, these guys were out and in the pigs and in the sea. What kind of power and authority can direct demons where they should go? What kind of power and greatness would even demons have to ask permission of to do their work? Now, this doesn't mean that demons are agents of God, gang. It doesn't mean, what it does mean here is they recognize Jesus had the authority, that he was the one who had the authority to decide whatever he wanted to do with them. And this freaks some people out. You read a passage like this and some would say, what does this say about Jesus? If he can actually direct demons, the Jewish leaders wondered that. This was going through some of their minds, actually thinking that Jesus' power might be satanic and listening to their thoughts. Jesus said the following, Matthew chapter 12, verse 25 says, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? He's saying it's kind of ridiculous for you to say that I'm doing this by the power of Satan. Because if I'm casting them out by Satan's power, I'm just hurting myself. But, Jesus says in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 12, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is upon you. I love that. That's awesome. My power didn't come from Satan. That would be self-destructive. My power, and I love how he phrases it like a question. If, if my power is at the Spirit of God, then the kingdom's here. And you're looking at the one who is the rightful heir to the throne. He is speaking with the authority of the kingdom's king. Why is it that Jesus places such a heavy focus on the kingdom? We talked about Matthew is the kingdom gospel. Over and over, the kingdom of heaven is used numerous times throughout this gospel. The kingdom of God. Jesus' first words out when he started his public ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Why such a heavy focus on that? Well, let me ask this question. What is it that characterizes the kingdom of God? You see, the kingdom of man can easily be characterized. It's piggish. That's the kingdom of man. We have a preference for pigs. Just like Gadara, mankind's concern is, and I'll just give you one more fun little pun, bringing home the bacon. That's what we're about. Getting our needs met, eating quickly, getting the fat. It's building a name for the self. It's lauding and exalting human achievement. That's the kingdom of man. The kingdom of Satan can easily be characterized as sharply perceptive. Recognizing Jesus' authority, realizing their future, requiring even Jesus' permission to do what they do. But what about the kingdom of God? What is the focus? What characterizes the kingdom of God? This might shock you. For the kingdom of God can be characterized by the priority of people. The priority of people. I want to end by going to Mark chapter 5 and listening to the end of this same story from Mark's perspective. Mark chapter 5, verse 14. It tells us the herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country and the people came to see what it was that had happened. 
They came to Jesus and they observed the man, or as we know, the men who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Now again, I said earlier, the reason why Mark and Luke mention one man rather than two is there was one of these two guys that was highly significant in the story. The other guy, we really don't know what happened to him. For all we know, he, he was healed of his demon possession and he ran off to find family and friends. Let them know what had happened. He, he went off. He got out of there quickly. Because apparently by the time the people came back, there wasn't two men there anymore. There was just the one. Just the one. Verse 18. Skip down and look at this. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. This is rare. He did not let him. But he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. And he went away, this one man of the two, went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed. You see, Jesus had been gathering followers, but by this time, or at this time, when this marvelously healed man says, I just want to be with you. I want to be near you. And again, it's interesting. He's there, the other guy's gone. Reminds me of the story when the ten lepers were healed. Two came back to thank Jesus, and Jesus said, where are the other ones? Where'd they go? And that's kind of a statement about humanity. Lots of people flock to Jesus to be healed. Few stick close to Him and want to go wherever He goes. This guy was one of the few. He says, oh, I just want to be now in your presence. I, you know, whatever I had before, I don't want to go back to. I just want to be with you, Jesus. And for one of the first times, I, I think the first time, Jesus actually said, no. And they said, go. You see, you want to be with me. You have my blessing, but you need to go now. Gang, listen, Jesus doesn't send us out to be his defense lawyers. And Jesus doesn't send us out to be prosecuting attorneys or judges or even juries. Jesus sends us out as witnesses. And this guy was the perfect example of this. Go and tell. Go and talk about it. Remember, so far, Jesus has been telling most people He healed, don't say anything. Keep this between us. But in this case, the timing was right. He says to the one-time demon-possessed man, now you go to to Decapolis, to the, the Gentile area. You go to the non-Jewish segment of society and you start telling them what happened. And we know the next time Jesus came back to the Decapolis, people flocked to Him because they knew about it. Thanks to this one man going. The priority of the kingdom is the salvation of people. Even the pig herders. Even the pig herders mattered enough to Jesus that Jesus didn't take away this voice of a witness, but He left Him there and said, you've got to tell people what happened. You've got to share this. Priority of the kingdom is people. By the way, does anyone remember the final occupation of the prodigal son in Jesus' famous parable? What He ended up doing? He was a pig herder. He ended up with the pigs. Luke 15, verse 16 says, He would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? And I'm dying here with hunger. 
I will get up and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was a long way off, you know the story, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, completely ignoring the son, he says to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And the calf, gang, not a pig, the calf, that symbol of sacrifice that ultimately would be played out by Jesus on the cross. Kill the fatted calf and then let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And that is the great priority of the kingdom. Saving people. People matter. Not the miracles. Not the big flash. Not the show. The kingdom is not about the show. The kingdom is about the people. It's about the people. You want to see demons scatter? You want to have a real impact for Jesus in this world? I take you back to that significant phrase in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6.33. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Don't settle for anything less than His unimaginable power. Don't prefer the piggishness of the world Don't fear the power of the the demonic realm. Stand with His priority. Kingdom first. Kingdom first. Well, how do I do that? Go home to your people and report what great things the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you.